you're listening to the Field Notes Podcast, where we descend from abstract ideas and disembodied theologies into the embodied, context-specific particulars of ministry on the ground. We hear from local leaders about struggle, breakthrough, doubt, hope, and everything in between. I'm your host, Seth Richardson. That neo-reformed emerging evangelical missional church movement was really influential to me, so it was a pretty logical step, but it has led to deep unravelings since then. And people are like, this is a cool church. Like, this is where Don Miller is at. Shane Claiborne does tons of stuff with them, and then you, like, get to the bottom of it. You're like, oh, no, there's a real place where we can't cross anymore. On this episode, we hear from Johnny Morrison, pastor at Missio Day Community in Salt Lake City, Utah. As we descend into the particulars with Johnny, we get a glimpse into the past and future of an emergent church. Remember that movement? We see what it was like to deconstruct some of the toxic theological structures within it, and then to see from within inside the movement new leadership structures characterized by mutuality. Here's Johnny. Salt Lake is like a I think it evokes a lot of uh, different images for different folks who like imagine Utah, who imagine what the state might be like. It's it's like just it's kind of like a wild landscape. Like you have red rocks in the south and then, yeah, huge mountains in the, the north and in the west. And I. I've never spent a lot of time like researching how our landscape shapes us, but I do believe that like the landscape of being a part of the west and being a part of like this kind of environment has like real influences on who we are as a people and and like a very simple way of even describing that, like doing church in a place that is like this means that there are rhythms that the environment create that you just have to work around rhythms of skiing, rhythms of camping, rhythms of like people move here to be outside. They don't move here for uh, like culture. They move here to be outside. And then hopefully culture like emerges out of all these people who were like, I want to go mountain biking every weekend. So our like landscape is such I'm in the city. And Salt Lake City is also a fascinating place. Uh, I don't, I wonder if there's places that are like it, someone from another like religiously red state in a liberal city would maybe be able to answer the question of how similar they are. But Utah is like obviously very LDS. And so the broader part of Utah really reflects that. Like there's mo- there's places in Utah that are 90% LDS uh, and will be like under a percent Christian or evangelical or Catholic or any other kind of like expression of traditional Christian faith. That means that it's like very conservative, but it's conservative in an LDS way. So if you're like familiar with Mitt Romney, like Mormon conservatism can look really different than especially evangelical conservatism, which we saw a lot in this last like presidential cycle, like Mormons are real hesitant around figures like Trump, like that kind of conservatism isn't appealing. And then the city that I'm in Salt Lake I do think it's like a response to how religious the rest of the state is. I think like it feels more like a little Portland or at least a place trying to be like Portland is maybe a better way to say it. Like it wants to live into that kind of reality. So then the vibe of the city is like a place that is pushing against conservatism, that's pushing against Mormonism, that's pushing against religiosity, but a religiosity that is different than uh, I think evangelicalism in a lot of ways. So that then forms up even like who we do life with here. Um, It's like a lot of people who are post-religious 
but post-religious, post-Mormon, again, it'd be interesting to know, like, this is the primary place I've done church, so I don't know what it's like to do it in, say, Dallas, where you might be pushing against evangelicalism. Here, people don't know what it means to be a pastor. Like, so if I go to a, like, a restaurant or a bar, and I meet someone who is new, and I, and they ask me what I do for a living, I say a pastor, it, it, there's a pretty good sense they'll have no context for what that means. So then that's like church in Utah is really interesting like that. Like that's one demographic. And then we have tons of transplants because we're a college town and like there's a weird tech boom in Salt Lake because we're conservative and don't tax things. So like there's just like a huge tech boom. So like half of our our community and congregation is like people who grew up here and are deconstructing their own religious context. And then just half people who moved here from California and uh, wanted the hip church to go to. So I, I am a co-lead pastor of Missio Dei Community Church. In a nutshell, Missio emerges from the emerging church movement. Uh, but one specific vein of that emerging church movement, which I think um, social scientists will often refer to as emerging evangelical. So it's the more conservative side of the emerging church. So you have the, you have the like features of a deconstructing church. It feels like a deconstructing church. Um, the aesthetic is very deconstructing. And I think that's kind of an important thing to say. Like it really has a vibe that we're going to like deconstruct things. And we don't come from like a high church tradition, but we're part of the emerging movement, which is like reinvesting liturgy into non-denominational churches. Uh, but that liturgy is kind of like creative. It's like, we're going to take some things from the Anglicans, but then we're going to rewrite it. Uh, and we might even throw a cuss word into the middle of it or something, you know, like, cause we're cool and hip. But at the end of the day, if you boil, if you pull back all the layers, there's still these like really essential and pretty conventionally evangelical um, statements of faith at the bottom of it, like penal substitutionary atonement, uh, inerrant scripture, uh, sexuality becomes like really essential to this kind of like evangelical emerging church movement. And we can trace that movement, um, unfortunately, directly from our church directly to Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill in Seattle because we are planted by a church called Imago Day Community in Portland, Oregon. And Imago was the very first Act 29 church plant, which is Mark Driscoll's network. Now we Imago leaves that network pretty early on because of contention around certain pieces of neo-reformed theology mainly how intense their complementarianism was. <clears throat> we wanted to be able to have um, women serve. Amago wanted to be able to have women serve in a little higher capacity, not as elders. So they're still complementarians, but they adopt as a, they consider a soft complementarian position. So women can serve as pastors, but then there's a separation between pastors and elders in the church. And so it's an all male elder team, but you can have female pastors. And I think in a lot of ways that was actually created around a very specific woman who is now my co-pastor at Missio. She was on staff at Imago at the very beginning. It's like impossible to deny that she's just like really gifted as a leader. And so I think that the more time people had experience with her, the more a theological position emerged around her that enabled her to serve at a high capacity, but not the highest capacity. Um, which is, you know, uh, worlds of, of painful, difficult brokenness that needs to be unpacked because of that kind of dynamic. But so that's like part of our tradition. But those dudes are also really influenced by the missional church movement. So like they start reading Newbegin. 
but he's like, but they're like really influenced by the gospel on our culture network. They're really influenced by new began and they start redeveloping their ecclesiology in light of this missional church movement. So they're deconstructing lots of things. They have a freedom to deconstruct lots of things. And then they really do believe, and I think this is genuine and maybe, maybe the most beautiful part of our tradition is that the modern evangelical church has done a bad job being missional, like incarnational and engaged in the city. They begin to rethink their ecclesiological structures to be more missional. And, and a fascinating thing happens where these conservative churches, these conservative evangelical churches start developing a kind of social Trinitarianism that is like revolving around missionality. So the, the father sends the son, the son sends the spirit, the spirit sends elders, the elders send deacons, deacons send members, and members go into the world and into the city. And so both Mars Hill and Amago start developing this like um, missional, but still pretty hierarchical Trinitarian uh, rooted in like EFS, eternal subordination or yeah, um, eternal functional subordination notion of hierarchy in the Trinity for the sake of mission. So you, it's like that weird merging of neo-reformed theology and missional church theology with that emerging movement and so then we're planted from um, Imago in 2010, and we inherit most of that. So we inherit that deconstructivist vibe. We inherit that neo-reformed, deeply masculine theology and that missional theology that is trying to hold on to a sense of incarnation in the city. Even that God is like doing things ahead of the pastor, like they, they like have a full frame in some ways for that the spirit is like gestating outside the work of the church but that it's still centrally centralized in some ways around a hierarchy of leadership in the church that models the hierarchy of the trinity supposedly and that that's how we instantiate god's mission into the city around us so we take that we plant in 2010 um in salt lake city utah and uh, yeah, that becomes like 30 people from Portland move out here to plant Amago or to plant Missio. And then in 2015, the church that I had planted merged with Missio to form a, like a newer community. Um, but even at the time, I think I was pretty influenced by the, the, the same like group of leaders, like the, that neo-reformed emerging evangelical missional church movement was really influential to me. So it was a pretty logical step, but it has led to um, deep unravelings since then. Have you experienced what Johnny has? Either growing up in or entering into a tradition only later for some of your core anchoring to come unmoored. Next, Johnny describes how Missio Day was built, where it was built, and who it was built for. As you listen, be curious about how your physical space is built and designed. What theological convictions does the design reflect? Whose body was it designed for? In 2014, Missio purchased a facility on the west side of the city in a neighborhood called Guadalupe, which is a majority Latinx community, but rapidly gentrifying community. Missio did not help in that pursuit, um, which I think is a thing that we have to own and like work through on our own. 
Uh, but it's a fascinating neighborhood in that when we moved in 2014, there was pretty much nothing happening because we were like in a warehouse district and then neighborhoods bumped up right up next to us. We had a perfect view of the Capitol. Uh, today, we cannot see the Capitol because luxury condos have gone in all around us. Like not just like condos, luxury condos. Like I think most of the the jazz players live across the street from Missio's facility now. Um, like that's like very expensive, very nice, very like beautiful, you know, condo facilities, but we're divided from those condos literally by a train track. So it's like the most like, you know, quintessential stereotypical East side, West side train tracks divide on the West side. So that is also beginning to happen because real estate in Salt Lake is, I think we're at like 115% occupancy, meaning like there's just so many people and there's not enough homes. So condos and apartments are going up really rapidly. On our side of the street, all the warehouses basically purchased just north of us are being turned into apartments and condos. Or I guess the facility that we bought was an interesting facility. It had like a the guy who owned it before us is currently in prison um, and the building was under foreclosure. And the building had a bit of like a nasty uh, like legacy in the in the community. And when we bought it, it felt like it. Like there was like mattresses and offices. There was like it looked, there was a restaurant in the middle of the building, like on the ground floor. And it, when we walked into it, it looked like a real like Tim LaHaye style rapture scene. Cause there was just still like plates of food sitting on tables. Like as though like a food inspector was like, came in and was like, get up, leave. And so the food was just left there. So there's like rats everywhere. And we had an architect in our community do most of the renovations. And he had a real commitment to telling the story of physical redemption while holding on to the bones of the building. And so there was like a real deliberate thoughtfulness on his part to say like, how do we tell a story that doesn't change the building, but redeems the building? So then if you enter inside the facility, especially, it is like pretty minimalist, um, like mostly concrete, mostly plywood, mostly the design is like geometric shapes as opposed to like lights or fixtures. It's really simple. and we invested more in like glass structures, like so that we could see windows of the community and windows outside and once upon a time, windows of the Capitol. And so that was really deliberate. Um, and then everything is very simple. So like our foyer where we put mostly work in the sanctuary is like mostly a big room, a lot of plywood, a stage with like plywood and geometric shapes, really flexible. That was the intention to say like, this is what, you know what this space is, but there's also something happening in here that's curating a different imagination. Same with the lobby. And then the one thing that is like maybe unique to like a, a non-denom is that we then put a prayer chapel as like one of the most like central visible features of the of the space. Um, as you like enter into the lobby, you turn left to go into the sanctuary or you can turn right and you can go to a prayer chapel and the prayer chapel is all glass on the front side so you can see into the prayer chapel and then all glass on the back side so you could see out into the city. And we wanted that to be a really deliberate statement about where, where our energies were directed and where we believe that God was working. And, not that this sanctuary space was more sacred than these other spaces. The actual demographics of our community who attends, I would say is um, we're probably around like mid threes, 400 people. It's very hard to tell uh, because we've not been able to gather together since, you know, this time last year, really. And our first major service of the year was Easter, which we did outside. Young family, young professional demographic, and then a bunch of college students, very, very few. Like I could count on one hand people over the age of like 50. 
just very few of that, which is a, you know, a fascinating vibe for a church. Um, middle class for the most part, upper middle class, like you're here because you're, you have a tech job um, and you're trying to decide if you want to stay. Um, so you, you're like a dad engineer. Uh, we are, but I, I am thankful. Like we are majority white. We are growing in um, diversity, but I think that's been like a really deliberate and hard work because we have not wanted to, one, we have not wanted to just like colonize the community in which we're living. Like there's lots of, we're in a neighborhood. There's actually more Christian churches in our neighborhood than maybe most parts of Utah because we're in a diverse neighborhood. So there's um, Latinx churches, there's Somali churches, there's refugee churches. We have uh, for most of our career at the building, we had a Burmese church that met at U- in our building and a Spanish church that met in our building. Like, so we really wanted to be very careful about um, trying to take over those spaces. And then also, are we, what, what are we inviting people into? Are we inviting people into a white space and a, like a white patriarchal space specifically? And I think for most of our career, which kind of goes back to our tradition, that is exactly what we would have been inviting people into. And we've been asking people to conform to that neo-reformed emerging evangelical, uh, which is deeply white and deeply masculine. And so I think we've been hesitant to, to invite people into that space too much. Um, but I think that's beginning to change. And I think we're starting to see a little bit of that reflected in terms of becoming a safer community for folks. One of the things I heard Johnny describe that stuck out to me was that Missio Day gives off a post-evangelical feel, but behind that veneer are more traditional doctrines and practices often connected to the neo-reform movement. So I asked Johnny if people have felt a kind of whiplash or bait and switch when they first pick up on this disconnect in their community. What I'm trying to get access to by asking this question is the informal script that informs and animates the life of this community. There's often a gap between a community's informal script and formal script, the things that the community says that it wants to be true about itself or aspires to be. This gap between formal and informal scripts isn't necessarily a problem, but it's a key question to ask if you want to understand what kind of dynamics are animating and influencing the shape of your community? Yeah, I think that's a really good thing to name. I, like the, maybe the best place to see that kind of like feeling of trickness is that, so in 2014, the year before I came on staff at Missio, we brought on Heather, uh, my co-lead pastor, who I mentioned earlier, I think was the woman that Imago built its theological position around. So we, we brought her on, um, because I mean, again, she's like an amazingly gifted pastor. You like cannot deny that. And then she was close to our founding pastor. Like they were good friends. You bring her on in the same role. So she's a pastor, not an elder, does not have access to eldership, but she regularly communicates. She regularly leads like at very public levels. And it definitely, that is like going to be the easiest place to say, like that definitely created a strange dynamic because there's not that many churches in Utah. I mean, there's not that many churches anywhere that have women's, publicly leading in the way that Heather was publicly leading. And so then it, I do think it felt for like a lot of people, like a bit of a bait and switch when they found out that she could serve in all of these massive capacities. She could preach sermons. She could start ministries. You know, she could like have vision even for different things, but she could not be on the elder team. Um, and so we've seen, I think there's no issue in our history that is more contentious than women in leadership because of how confusing 
that messaging was. And I don't I don't think that like our leadership was trying to be deceptive. Like I think they really believed in the positions they held, uh, which has also caused tension later. Like the deep like sense of moral conviction and theological conviction that led to those positions running up against different kinds of theological convictions and moral convictions has caused tension in the most recent years a lot around that issue. Uh, because now Missio is not soft complementarian. We've moved to like a full mutualist position. Gender and ministry has been a place of contention. Uh, sexuality has been a place of contention because like, I think people even thought like how gray we were and how willing we were to ask questions about God or scripture would then mean that we would be willing to do that in other places. And then you, yeah, you pull back the layers of deconstructivism and you run into a wall of like morally intransigent positions and they, and they don't budge. Like, especially three years ago, they do not move. We do not move on penal substitutionary atonement. We don't move on sexuality. We don't move on certain understandings of gender. Um, we don't move on our understanding of scripture. And that's true, like, no matter what, as soon as you run into those walls, what I learned is that you become a threat. Um, like I, we had a, um, a ministry that launched at Missio in 2017, 2018, um, around gender. And I offered, and this is when I was just on staff. I wasn't the co-lead pastor yet. I was just on staff. I offered some critiques of that ministry and its theological understanding of masculinity and was told by someone I loved and respected a lot. I never expected this to happen. I was told by that person that if, that if my position of sexuality was reflected in my questions that I needed to find a different community to go to. And I wasn't even talking about like, we were not having a conversation about LGBTQ issues. We were having a conversation about what biblical masculinity is. And just like how much room do we have to like press on it and, and challenge it? Because I was seeing a real deep reflection of like some Jordan Peterson nonsense. And I wanted to just like, just wanted to ask questions. But it was like, there's places where you can't ask those questions because you have those like deeply morally intransigent positions at the bottom of the cool blue like jazz structure over top. Because we like, so Don Miller is from our tradition. So like people like he was at Imago. He and Heather were tight friends. So it's like you have that kind of like surfacey thing. And people are like, this is a cool church. Like this is where Don Miller is at. Shane Claiborne does tons of stuff with them. And then you like get to the bottom of it. You're like, oh, no, there's a real place where we can't cross anymore. Which I mean, some of those places are maybe fine. I'm not trying to like criticize it, but it is, it is a, I think, a confusing experience for people. Next, Johnny describes how communal assumptions about leadership we're continuing to come unraveled after an unexpected exit of a lead pastor. Think of a time when you found yourself right in the middle of an unexpected, painful, or confusing season. Be curious about that unraveling. Were there any assumptions or deeply ingrained habits that were dislodged for you? Perhaps also in an unexpected way or in a way that you could not have orchestrated if you tried. Well, I think all the things that we've just named um, converged into kind of like a perfect storm in 2019. Hmm. Because in the, to the beginning of 2019, our lead and founding pastor resigned from Missio to take a job at another larger church in California. Um, and when that happened, a bit of a vacuum opened. And one that we did not expect to open. Um, our lead had served as a bit of a mediator between different factions of leadership. And I think in that sense had curated a, a set of assumptions that we believed were shared. Very quickly when he left, we realized those assumptions were not shared. And I don't think that was like our male elders fault. I don't think it was necessarily even this lead's fault or even our fault, but it, it revealed like, oh, there's, 
there's different assumptions. There's even different assumptions about how we see one another, about the kind of conversations that we're having, like about the narratives that are shared in one space versus another. And so after 2019, we started to try to figure out how to, what, what was the, what were we going to do? Like what we're going to do now that we have this gap in our leadership. And when that happened and those conversations around filling the gap, all of these understandings, this tradition, this like, set of assumption about leadership, these understandings around mission, this understanding around gender, all of it came to the surface. It was like those, that was the morally intransigent positions at the bottom of something, but they were forced to the surface because they shaped the answer to the new leadership gap question. And our, and one section of, of the leadership team really wanted to hire basically a one-for-one replacement for our lead not even a one-for-one one replacement. The, the language that was used pretty consistently is that we wanted to hire a 55 to 65-year-old um, executive male leader, which then brings, like, there, there's a lot of assumptions that are brought into, like, why that's the right answer. And Heather and I, um, through that conversation and then kind of just on our own journey, we're like, that, first of all, that assumption comes from somewhere. And I'm not sure that it answers the questions that we have about what Missio needs to be. So that, like, that's why, like, I feel like all of these things come to the surface in that issue, like the practice of replacing our lead. In 2020, things started to normalize a little bit, and it was like some some big disruptions happened that led us to kind of reevaluate. 2020, we we basically embark on a set of experiments, um, experiments in co-leadership, experiments in a. Um, flatter authority structure, um, which I think we've learned a lot from that there's a difference between flat and um, equitable, but it was an experiment. Um, flatter, yeah, authority structures, equitable leadership, co-leadership amongst Heather and I, and trying to empower people more in the community. That was the experiment of 2020. Uh, it was really good in a lot of ways, um, but that was like our bigger work. Like most churches, I think were struggling with COVID and we were still trying to figure out like life together after so much politicking and disruption and losing our lead that it was like that was actually the larger story of 2020 for us COVID was like a smaller footnote in terms of like where our energy was going in a lot of ways and then that continued and then in 2021 um we made some commitments out of that set of experiments um and then and it's interesting that we're having this conversation now like uh, we're rolling out some of those commitments to our community at like a more formal level, I think most people believe they're already like formal commitments, but like we actually changed bylaws and changed some legal documents in light of the learnings that we'd had over the last couple of years. And what we really believe the spirit was teaching us and kind of unraveling through a very difficult and painful process. Um, and so, yeah, so I think the question, like a lot of it came down to, it was the gaps, it was the tension. A lot of it came down to leadership, leadership structures and how all of these positions kind of instantiated in a leadership structure that centered a singular person. And I think we really believed, because we go back to that Trinitarian hierarchy, like in that understanding, I think we really believed that if we centered on a singular person, like a father figure, that it would unleash the full structure and that it would empower the most amount of people and it would be the most efficient thing. And efficiency was kind of an important piece of language, which you notice by the executive administrative leader. The efficiency becomes a really important piece of language. And if we have that person, we can empower the community. We can unleash the community for mission. And I think what we learned very painfully is that that's a bit of a myth. Um, and that a leadership structure that centers a singular person disempowers the rest of the people. 
that was our learning. Um, and that not that you don't have leadership structures, like we're really indebted to Fitch, like as Fitch has leadership structures in his like works, but it's a very different kind of understanding around leadership structure that is more about mutuality, about plurality, and about the recognition of gifts that empower the people. But we, I don't think we would have learned that. I think I would have been convinced of the of my own ability to be a singular lead figure in our tradition if it hadn't been for this kind of like intense season of disruption, disorientation and reorientation around the gap that was created and that enabled us, I think, to pay attention to the Spirit's work and what the Spirit was unraveling. Congregational change rarely comes through grand strategies and top-down programs. Change happens at the speed of people's imaginations. And new imagination is often forged through the intrusion of circumstances that leaders do not control. Sometimes a season of deconstruction just arrives, not through some trendy teaching on postmodernism, but through the surprising work of the Spirit. When leaders hold space to tend to what is happening rather than fixing or managing it, new horizons open up. Well, I think one thing is like, there's there's this, this we've been in this like, it's like kind of intense adaptive zone for a long time. I think some of the things that are really hopeful is that Missio has committed like legally and formally and theologically, I think in a lot of ways to uh, attempting mutual and co-leadership. So Heather and I have formally been installed as co-lead pastors, which our legal bylaws didn't even permit. You had to have a singular male in our bylaws. So we had to like formally change the bylaws in order for the structure of the church to enable more than one person to hold the mantle of quote unquote lead pastor. Um, We've also done some massive structural changes in terms of how, and theology changes in terms of how we do the rest of our leadership team. So when we started this season in 2019, women were not elders. Today they are. Um, So we have shifted in terms of our like, theological position, which then all shifted our um, leadership structure. So today our leadership team actually has more women on it than it does men, um, which not, that's like a win necessarily. We want it to be equitable, but it's a moment of like, wow, I, I, I genuinely didn't know in 2019, like fall of 2019, if you'd asked me where I thought we would have been, I would have been like, oh, I think I'll be looking for a new job soon. Um, I think I actually told you that, like, I was like just as friends, I was like, yeah, I think I'm gonna be looking for a new job soon. And then to, so then to tell you that in 2021, uh, like we formally changed our leadership structure to enable mutualist structures. Women are serving on the team. We're kind of devising some systems around our leadership structure to continue distributing power more and more. So there's like shorter term limits. There's uh, more structures below that that help like people basically be qualified for eldership or deaconship. Like we're kind of shifting some of the way this focuses. So, cause before it was all revolving around basically the senior pastor chose men to be on the leadership team. So like shifting all the responsibilities and the power away from me. I don't have any, I don't have any role in choosing now necessarily who's the nominated candidate. So there's a lot of things that are shifting to be like, how do we make this a bit more equitable? How do we distribute authority and power more into the community? As that's happening, I also think the same kind of energies are starting to happen, maybe more importantly, in the community themselves. Like we're about to launch um, like a learning community with a handful of like lay leaders um, walking through like some of Roxborough stuff to help them discern, kind of walk through their own process of disorientation, disruption, and then discern where God is calling them because it's all these leaders who had served in some kind of formal vocational role in ministry, found that to be like a bit, well, found it to be what exactly what we did, like 
rooted in some of these narratives and traditions that were restrictive. So now it feels like as a community, we get a dream together about how they can join God's work in their neighborhood and their city around them. So we're about to do some learning communities with the community, not just the leadership structure. Cause I think 2019 to 2021 was all pretty centralized, um, which is maybe the plot of what happened over the last couple of years. It was all within a leadership team. And so now it feels like it's starting to disseminate into the rest of the community that everybody else can get their hands on it. So I feel, I think like lots of there's, there is lots of possibility. I, I took a big sigh of relief in April of this year when it was like some of these things finally formally changed. And it was the first moment that it felt like, oh, we might have just come out of this. Like it, the worst of it, you know, like, we, like we've been doing it since 2019. Like we might be in a new-ish moment and now we get to focus on listening and like kind of like restart the process but now from a different place of mutuality and uh, a different imagination for where the spirit is and what leadership looks like i think that's like i really do believe that our team is gaining a new imagination for what leadership looks like and that's maybe been the biggest work over the last couple of years is that it doesn't look like control it doesn't look like management it doesn't look like trying to force things for efficiency it doesn't center on a singular person everybody's invited everybody's called there's we don't need to use the the trinity like even in our understanding of the trinity has changed like there's been these huge movements that have like shifted how we think and dream so yeah lots of there's some like real tangible possibility there and then i think some just like imaginative hope that is also bubbling up around the surface is because of that thanks for listening to the field notes podcast brought to you by the telos lab for congregational discovery And special thanks to Johnny for sharing how the Spirit is working in his context. The Field Notes podcast offers a behind-the-scenes glimpse into the kind of work we do at the Telos Lab for Congregational Discovery. The lab partners with you in your ministry context, digs into the details and nuances of your context, and helps you discern new transformative practices that help your community participate in what God is already doing. If you'd like to learn more, check out the link in the show notes. Peace.